I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's kind of a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. With a little background thrown in on some of the actors, maybe a story about the director, and if I'm doing my job, perhaps something funny will come out of my lips and entertain you. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you would like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend. Give us a favorable review. This week, we are wrapping up this month's theme, Robots Gone Wild, our selection of films that cover some misbehaving bots. On that note, we are pleased to offer up the 1990 sci-fi horror classic, Hardware. Join us. Don't you love it when you stumble upon things when you aren't expecting them? I know I do. I often would take advantage of the fact that my maternal grandparents had HBO, a basement TV, and left me lots of unsupervised time, at least for a boy the age of 11. My goal was to watch the HBO airing of Home Alone, but I had missed it and I was looking for something else to watch. I can see it now in my mind. I'm in a brown tiled basement. There's a giant console TV in front of me, and I'm sitting on a Naugahyde white leather sofa that is both soft and ice cold. I took in half an airing, by accident, of hardware. It was a mistake. And it was an amazing, albeit a little scary, a lot salacious, and a whole lot of fun. The downside? I only saw half of it. My father came downstairs to, you know, to collect me, and I had to quickly A, change the channel, and also had to swap over, see some reruns of SNL that were playing on Comedy Central. Back in the day, kids, it happened. And then I had to leave to go off and catch a soccer game for my brother. I would not get to correct such an injustice until long after I had gone away to college and I had rented it from the local mom-and-pop store for my own personal viewing. That's when I finally got to put it all together. Still, all that being said, it was a movie that burned its way into my consciousness, and I remember wanting to find out more about the director, a man by the name of Richard Stanley. Richard Stanley is on a short list of directors from my youth who seemed to have the world by the tail until it was all violently taken away from them. Now, unlike some of the other up-and-coming directors I got to see rise and then flame out, Stanley's fall was arguably not his fault. It wasn't brought on by delusions of grandeur and a horrible attitude. I'm looking at you, Troy Duffy. Stanley, instead, was the victim of horrible, horrible timing, combined with a flighty studio, a terrible act of God in the form of a tropical storm, 
and all of it will be a story we cover for another episode when we discuss the colossal train wreck that was 1996's Island of Dr. Moreau. But for all his travails, Stanley was a much respected director of music videos and who was renowned for having an avid imagination, a can-do attitude, and a spark of ingenuity when it came to working on large concept projects utilizing very little resources. And very little resources is something hardware had. So like I said, I will get into Stanley's tragic tale on another date. For right now, let's talk about his triumphant freshman outing, which is this film, 1990's amazing hardware. So what you have here is your standard Terminator clone, but done with such style and aplomb that you can't help but love its moxie and grit. He created this dystopic future where masses of people are just scraping by, radiation is a very real and constant threat, and America is under a fascist authoritarian government that is looking for creative ways to reduce the world's population. Stanley was the author of the original 8mm film he shot that would be the basis of this picture when he was in school. but. It's only after lawsuits were brought out from the British Fleetway publications did he actually reveal that he may or may not have cribbed some of the story itself from the classic 2000 AD comic anthology, particularly a story published in there called Shock. Now, if you haven't heard of 2000 AD comics, uh, they're amazing. In America, we had Heavy Metal Magazine. The Brits had 2000 AD. Fantastic, gorgeous artwork. Um, the series Flesh, which is usually about giant man-eating dinosaurs being hunted by cowboys. Uh, Hookjaw, which is a total, amazingly drawn Jaws rip-off parody comic that, that is just fantastic. And of course, one of the great things that came out of 2080, Judge Dredd. Definitely worth your time, and there was actually a wonderful documentary that came out two years ago uh, covering the span of 2080 that is well worth your time. That's a free plug because it's amazing. Go out and find it if you want to learn about comics today. That story, Shock, was originally penned by Steve McManus and Kevin O'Neill. So Stanley himself wasn't a complete thief because his story was influenced in part by the comics, but he didn't take it line for line. And he also mixed in a bunch of other influential dystopias that were already there. It was a Miramax-backed film, and while Stanley was putting together this multinational cast, the studio, actually I will say wisely insisted, that there at least needed to have the leads be Americans to help sell the picture. So thus, because of that, we get the casting of an extremely young Dylan McDermott and a young Stacey Travis, respectively. But Stanley then made up for more of it by giving this wonderful multinational cast behind them. You had John Lynch, Iggy Pop, Carl McCoy, William Hookins, Mark Northover, and Lemmy. Yes, that Lemmy from Motorhead. All of them together in a post-apocalyptic drama about a fellow who lives his life as a merc and a scrapper, who goes looking for treasures to bring to his beautiful artist girlfriend, and who accidentally brings her a seemingly deactivated head of a destroyed droid, unaware that the robot is both capable of reconstructing itself and that it is an experimental unit that has been created to mass exterminate people. 
insert all of this into a cramped apartment and watch the fireworks fly. You would be especially right to cheer the heroes on as they struggle in vain to contend with the damage caused by this machine. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, it is. But I've wasted enough of your time talking about it. Why don't we go ahead and we get to that trailer? Throwaway technology. I give you 30, 40, 50. I know you'd see it my way. Only some of the stuff that gets thrown away isn't dead. No. Merry Christmas, baby. I got something else you like. What is it? It's a sleep. presents his new model, the Mark 13. The Mark 13 is self-repairing, capable of recharging its storage batteries from just about any power grid, including the sun. And when it wakes up, it'll become something entirely new. I gotta see. It's important. Meet me in one hour. A creature that combines the technology of a computer, the deceit of a human, and the killer instinct of a machine. James, listen to me. This is serious. Jealous in trouble. I didn't see anybody. Get ready for an encounter with some seriously heavy metal. as he treks across a vast irradiated waste and find him discovering a bunch of buried junk pieces which as he cleans the sand off he discovers it's a head part of an upper torso and an arm of what appears to be a broken robot collecting it in a bag he continues his trek back into civilization we then cut into Hard Mo, that's Moses Baxter, as played by Dylan McDermott, walking with his friend Shades, as played by John Lynch. Moe's just back from being on assignment off-world. He basically gets his pay, going out into space, doing missions, coming back. He does all this work to help pay for and maintain the lifestyle that his girlfriend Jill has become accustomed to. Jill lives in a wonderfully protected uh, I would argue, palatial for this irradiated dystopia high-rise apartment tower full of security, automation. She never has to leave. Jill is played by the lovely, lovely Stacy Travis. Hasn't seen Mo in a while, and Mo has been out and about trying to earn money and is basically coming for the holiday as this film is set at Christmas. Mo stops by 
Alvi's shop. Alvi is a trader of junk and is played by the wonderful Mark Northover. As Shades and Mo are having a discussion and waiting for Alvi return so they can try to sell him some stuff, the Nomad comes in, and Mo, sensing that there might be something he can get from him, barters with him and ends up buying what he has in the sack, which unfortunately turns out to be just pieces of broken robot. Alvi doesn't want it, so that's not a problem. Mo figures while he took a bath on the deal, he can give the pieces to Jill, who is a gifted artist and metal sculptor. This is a peace offering for being gone for so long, and if nothing else, a Christmas present. Dad, help me. He kills me every time. You're pushing something. I see where it is, Shades. in a big one. Come on. You just wait. All those years out in the zone, your kids will make me look like Narcissus. Mo leaves one of the robotic hands with Alvi to analyze just to see what this is. And, along with Shades, returns home. Shades is actually in an apartment that is one flight up. So, they say goodbye, 
and Mo attempts to get back inside to his domicile, only to find that Jill, not in the best of moods since Mo has left for a long time, has changed the locks on him. Now, during all this time too, we get to see that Jill has an unwanted admirer. There is an active peeping Tom who is surveilling her, who prank calls her and leaves her sexually suggestive messages, who is generally being a creep, and we get to see this all in a very disgusting light. This guy is played by William Hootkins, and he likes to introduce himself as Lincoln Weinberg Jr. Now, Mo eventually sweet-talks his way back in, and after a couple tense moments, reconciles with Jill, apologizing for being gone so long, offering her up the medal as both a present and as a peace offering. They chat for a bit, and then end up reconciling, showering, and then spending the night together. All of this is taken in by the grotesque peeping Tom to some sort of skin-crawling, really, scenes. Doesn't much matter. In the morning, or at least in the part of the night where Mo is asleep, but Jill, with her constant state of chugging coffee while smoking these weird cannabis cigarettes, gets the notion that she just has to work. So she ends up creating this gigantic metal sculpture out of the robotic pieces, putting it into a nice frame, almost like a spider web with the robot head in the middle, and using parts of the arm and the torso to intertwine. She then paints a stars and stripes pattern on the robot's head and frames it, and it becomes this really interesting, neat piece. Now, one of the things I actually love about this movie is, of course, she manages to do this very intricate work where she's blowtorching, soldering, cutting metal, and taking care of everything, and she does it all in the span of, like, two or three hours. Alvy. I gotta see you. Sorry to call you so late, but it's important. Jesus, Alvy, talk to me in the morning. No, 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 it has to be now. I'm talking about big bucks. Savvy? Meet me in the yard in one hour and bring the Mark 13 with you. The what? Oh, no, the skull and bones. No way, Alvy. Forget it. Hear me out. I can't talk on the phone. There's too many ears. Meet me in one hour. Mark 13 Project, file number 4371D, Fair Isle Electronics. Government funding to the Mark 13 Project is currently under suspension due to minor problems with the prototype's insulation system, currently susceptible to high levels of moisture and humidity. Designed primarily for arid terrain, the Mark 13 is self-repairing, capable of recharging its storage batteries from just about any power grid, including the sun. The Mark 13's strength lies in its multifaceted combat systems. Equipped with electronically activated weaponry and night sights, the Mark 13 has a choice of using six primary limbs and three auxiliary limbs. More legs than a fucking spider. Meanwhile, Alvi has been analyzing the chips that he found inside the hand of the robot in question. He is horrified to discover that the robot is actually a government-designed droid. It's designated as Mark 13, which is actually a biblical reference from Mark 1320. 
where this particular passage states that no flesh shall be spared. In short, the robot has been designed by the government to have controlled human genocide, the ultimate way to stop the overpopulation problem that the country is facing. Every part of the robot is a working weapon. The droid can power itself back on using just about power from any source, and it is capable of rebuilding itself. The limbs are all equipped with deadly neurotoxins. It is the ultimate weapon, and they found it. Alvi's first very excited, and he puts a call into Mo, saying he can't explain about it over the phone. Just look up Mark 13 and then come over to the shop. After hanging up with Mo, Alvi, very excitedly, is looking at the droid's hand, but doesn't take into account that he himself has powered it up. Mo leaves, goes to Alvi's, and discovers Alvi dead, poisoned by the robotic hand. Meanwhile, Jill, at home, is facing problems. You see, the head and the part of the torso of the Mark 13 have glommed onto the power supply that she used to light the backlighting of the robot itself. Suddenly, she has a droid in her apartment who is building himself up, recreating and adding limbs onto his body, turning back into a hulking monster. That is, intending to kill her. The droid makes a couple awkward attempts to attack her at first, and the power and lights end up going out, and the droid himself ends up in an attempt to smash at Jill, closes the curtains and the blinds, punching through to her bed, snapping through the pillows, shredding her bedding, destroying a great chunk of the apartment wall. This disturbs the peeping Tom, who decides to take it upon himself to come over to Jill's place, posing as a concerned neighbor who can help restore the power and, most importantly, open her blinds again. Jill, desperate to get out of the apartment, tries to explain to him that there is a robot gone haywire, but he's not having it. He thinks she's putting him on. So he locks the door and locks the two of them in the apartment, creating a truly horrifically uncomfortable scene. It's okay. Who are you? I'm a neighbor. What do you want? Lincoln Weinberg Jr. You can call me Lincoln Link. I just wanted to be sure you're all right. I'm fine. Look, my boyfriend's asleep in the other room. Your boyfriend? Mm-hmm. So, I think you better go now. You know, I don't think too much of this boyfriend of yours. Now, I don't see anything going on between you. You know, nothing real, nothing permanent. That's really why I came. Get Get back! Listen, I know a lot about you. I know things about you that you probably don't even know. I bet. You've always been my favorite subject. Oh, Jesus. What's that? There's a droid running crazy in my lounge. Ah. That's okay. We can go to my place. I want this work. 
uh, someone's activated the emergency override. You can only disengage it from the main console. How do you know? I used to be with the surveillance company and installed all the locks and cameras in this whole block a few years ago. That's how we know each other. But you made me a coffee while I was here. Black, two sugars? I don't remember. It's okay. I don't mind. Now what? Sounds like something's overloading the main power grid. Yeah, well, look, Mr. Uh, Weinberg, I Lincoln. You call me Link. Please? Lincoln, can you get us out of here? Where's the main terminal? It's in the living room, but you can't go in there. That's no, okay. It's all right. It's all right. I know what I'm doing. Let me have it. Come on. Come on. You can trust me. I really know what I'm doing. Lincoln does manage to restore some power to the apartment, and as he makes his way into Jill's bedroom, she keeps warning him there is a robot in there. He is not concerned. Walks over, opens the blinds, and realizes that the Mark 13 has been hiding behind said blinds the entire time. Lincoln is brutally, brutally killed, the robot grabbing his face and crushing his head. Jill flees to the kitchen and tries to hide and starts to notice that the robot is attracted to heat sources and keeps zoning in on them. So Jill, doing what logical people would do, starts emptying her fridge and climbing inside to the cold box, desperate to hide her own body heat from his view. The Mark 13 stumbles around, feeling for her, but doesn't seem to find her. Mo, by this time, has returned and has rallied some of the neighbors and security into opening the door. The apartment bursts open, and Mo and a small squad are able to shoot the Mark 13, blowing it out through the back window, seemingly saving the day. Jill and Mo embrace, but it is a short lived moment of reverie because the Mark 13 never died. It was hanging on the side of the building this entire time. It crawls right back into the apartment window to everyone's horror. And it grabs Jill, hurling her outside into space. Jill does manage to catch a hanging wire and for a while is just awkwardly swinging into the void. But she gets bumped and thrown into the neighbor's apartment below, smashing through the plate glass window and winding up on their dining room table. The security guards trying to restore power and lights also are horrified as one of their members gets knocked backwards and the door closes on him, cutting him in half, locking the other friends outside in the hall, unable to help Mo. Mo is forced to attempt to engage the robot himself, shooting at it with his gun, grappling with it, and banging it over the head. The Mark 13 simply injects him with the same neurotoxin that killed Alvi. Mo begins to feel weak and experiences the poisoning. He does have the presence of mind to start an audio recording that hopefully Jill will find and be able to use. He warns her that the Mark 13 has a weakness. It was designed to be used in the radiated wasteland. It can't deal with moisture. Jill manages to break back inside her own apartment, attempting to save Mo. She's horrified to find Mo already dead on the floor. She goes to the terminal and tries to figure out where the Mark 13 robot is, trying to connect to it and see it, and then she hears Mo's 
instructions playing. Knowing the Mark 13 is not going to stop, she and Shades quickly move through the apartment. The Mark 13 attacks Shades, but as they retreat into the bathroom, Jill is smart enough to turn on the shower, and she uses it to completely short-circuit and exterminate the Mark 13 unit. It has been a horrific night. Many people have died. Jill is broken and tired. And as the morning sun comes up, Angry Bob, the radio broadcaster himself, announces that the government has signed a new program that is going to put a lot of people back to work. New factory jobs manufacturing this great new droid, the Mark 13, has full approval and is about to be mass-produced. Credits roll as we see the same Zone Nobad walking alone out in the desert. What an upbeat film. Where do we even begin? Well, let's just start talking about the acting for a moment. McDermott and Travis are both great, although I have to say they, they're far too clean and sexy and healthy to be living in this future cesspool where everyone seems to be like just rotting away from radiation poisoning. But again, people want to see good-looking leads in a story, and this is a movie, so take it for what it is. John Lynch is competent as shades as he always is in every project I've ever seen him be in. Iggy Pop has a great run at being the foul-mouthed radio DJ Angry Bob that we get to hear in the background all the time but we never get to see. So, to me, the true performance that makes this movie, the guy who gets the most credit, is the disgusting and creepy Mr. William Hootkins for his portrayal of Lincoln Weinberg Jr. The slovenly, perverted voyeur neighbor who has Jill's apartment completely under telescopic scrutiny from his apartment across the way. When he comes over to check on Jill, that scene with that ultimate goal of opening the blinds again to look in on her, but the entire time he's really being creepy. He licks her nose, he's poking fun at her, he's bad-mouthing Mo, even though he's never met him. One is very much thinking we would all rather take our chances with the killer robot than be alone in this room with him. You smoke a lot of dope. I see you. Does it get your boyfriend hard or what? I get people dope sometimes when they come around to my place and it gets them hard. You can stop talking now. What if I sing? You want me to sing? I don't really care. Just get us out of here. Okay. Oh, we all walk the wibberly wobberly walk. And we all talk the wibberly wobberly talk. Oh, we all wear wibberly wobberly ties. And we look at all the pretty girls with wibbly wobbly eyes. I made that up. Look, I want to make two things very clear to you right now. One, there is no other way out of here. So that means that droid is still in here somewhere. And two... You just want me to leave. I just want you to open the door. Why are you so afraid of me? 
I'm not afraid of you. boyfriend he's in the core he just got back from the zone he just went out for a pack of cigarettes any second he's gonna walk through that door and we don't want him to get the wrong idea do we check good thinking okay this should just about do it so we can go Why is this such a great role for him? Well, see, in my opinion, up until this point, Hootkins has played heroes or sort of buttoned-up types. Uh, for me, he, he sticks out in my childhood in, like, two things. He's Porkins from the original Star Wars, you know, one of the first X-Wing fighter pilots on the Death Star trench run who ends up getting shot down and explodes against the side of the space station. He also plays Major Eaton in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's one of the two government agents that gets Indiana Jones interested in going and looking for the Ark in the first place. And he has the awesomely memorable line at the end where he explains to Indy exactly who's looking into taking care of the Ark. See, so seeing him as such a scumbag is a wild change of pace for me. I'm sad to, to say uh, I didn't know this before I started working on this episode. Uh, Mr. Hookins actually passed away in 2005, and it's, it seems a shame. He seemed like a really cool guy and was in a lot of things that a lot of people have seen. So I, I would say go on, check out his filmography. It's definitely worth it. Let's move on. Let's talk effects. For the time and for a movie with this kind of budget, they are practical and they are rather gorgeous. The world is so lived in and low rent, no one has trouble believing that these characters inhabit this plane of existence. What George Lucas so aptly described for the Star Wars universe, it's a used future. I love the fact that the Nomad is played by Carl McCoy and he's such an imposing figure. He's out there, walking on the radioactive range. He's decked out in leathers with a long duster and goggles, a respirator plugged in with a wide-brim hat. He looks like a cross between Solomon Kane and a dollar store knockoff Darth Vader toy. When he finally gets inside Alvy's resale shop and starts speaking to both Moe and Shades, as he walks into the dark confines of the shop, it's spectacular long shot as he comes up a hallway. It captures the fact that his eyes are glowing. I can't substantiate this at all, and they have never posted about this. But since I've seen this film, it has always been my belief that Nomad was the inspiration for Mortal Kombat's character, Cabal. At least as he originally appeared in Mortal Kombat 3. Again, dealing with the effects. 
Stanley had a hard time with Miramax getting this film past the MPAA ratings board because of how gory the effects were. The first cut of this film ended up receiving an X rating for all of the gore. This is right before the X rating was kind of put out to pasture and NC-17 was being phased in, so no studio wanted a kiss of death of an X rating. It was just completely an unsavory association with the world of pornography, so the film was recut to tone down the violent content a bit. I think if you were to watch it now, because it has since been released and restored to its original intended version and is simply a not-rated movie, I think you would find that an episode of The Walking Dead on AMC is equally as violent, and that's just basic cable. But hey, societal tolerance and that sort of thing has changed over time. I do think in a setting like this, in a world that is so far gone, there's some wonderful subtle undertones that are very notable here. For example, Mo clearly loves Jill. He wants to have a life with her, even start a family with her. But things are so far gone from a societal point of view, Jill is very jaded. She is content to stay and just try to eke out an existence of being comfortable, attempting to be happy, bathed in this artificial womb she's created while the outside world continues to crumble. As she brews her tea and constantly smokes those cannabis cigarettes, that questioning of the logic of continuing the species with Mo is a very real couple's argument. I think it actually is a wonderful both morality judgment here and also a slice of life. Who doesn't talk about how they're going to continue living their lives? Do you start a family? Do you plan to have goals? It really works here. Population bill they're trying to put through? No. They're trying to stop people from having kids in the next few years. They're gonna levy fines against people who have too many, take away their ration coupons, chemically sterilize people who already have high life doses of radioactivity. Uh, it'll never work. It's our nature to reproduce, to live on through our children. Well, mankind's always gone against his nature. Used to be natural to die of old age before you were 30. What are you saying? You like the idea? No, I just think it's stupid and suicidal. Sadistic type children right now. Stupid, sadistic, and suicidal. The three S's. That's how I feel. That's how you feel, huh? And what is this? Uh, some kind of statement about all that? No. Because if it is, I don't get it. I mean, what's the, uh, what's the head supposed to mean, anyway? It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's not for you. It's not for anybody. I guess not. All I'm saying is it'd be nice if you could sell something every once in a while. That's all I'm saying. I mean, wouldn't it? Look, I'm doing all right, Mo. I don't need anything from you. I don't know about that. Government takes a pretty big hunk out of my paycheck every month. I mean, where do you think your welfare checks come from, huh? What do you want me to do? You want me to join the Corps? 
think of what our radioactive kids would be like then. I stopped thinking about kids a long time ago. You're always saying things will change. Maybe they will. Oh, yeah, they will. They will. They're going to get worse before they get better. Survival of the fittest. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, I'd like that. And why not? I'm one of the fittest. <laughs> I keep asking myself why I let you in every time. Why the fuck do I let you in? So how was this film received? Well, it never had a mass release, but it actually did alright for itself. Made on a small budget of just $1.5 million, Hardware ended up earning $5.7 million at the box office. It initially garnered mixed reviews from critics upon release, disparaging the picture as being derivative of other films like Alien, Terminator, except accusing it, and making this sound like a bad thing, of having a punk aesthetic. Yeah, it totally does, and it's going for that. And while it may be true, I gotta say, Terminator wasn't exactly the first picture about a killer robot. And for the record, James Cameron ended up having to pay Harlan Ellison royalties for the Terminator story because it itself was a derivative of his short, Demon with a Glass Hand. So everybody out there, check yourselves before you wreck yourselves. As the years have passed, Hardware has gained far more acceptance, as new audiences and critics are finding it and noting that it actually deserves to have a second or third look. If nothing else, for the fact that it's an amazing sense of audacious style. But hey, not everyone has received this film with the same level of love that I have. And that's alright. People are allowed to have differing opinions. And that's exactly why we have the sidecar. Joining us today on the sidecar is the one, the only, the Velocipeter, our favorite monologist and the host of the Velocipodcast himself. Peter has been kind enough to reach out to us again and do us a solid favor of giving his take on hardware and the things that he's gleaned from it. So, what do you have to say for us today, Peter? My shtick is picking apart things, little things usually, and then trying to make them into big things. The premise of my podcast is stupid topics taken very seriously. In the movie Hardware, I actually found it very difficult to find anything to pick apart because they understood their budget. Most of the film all happened on a single soundstage. Most of the actions within the film, in a weird way, actually made sense. But then they did something that I cannot stand. They broke physics. So in the movie Hardware, it is established early on that when our heroine is having sexual intercourse, uh, quite enthusiastically, it's noisy. The Chinese lady who lives underneath her bangs the ceiling and complains about the noise, and then complains about the fact that she's not even married. So there's a little morality judgment in there. 
Later in the film, when some actions happen, our heroine is then left hanging from her own balcony. She's hanging from a wire, and the wire snaps, and she swings away from the building. Yet she then crashes into a building, through a window, into the middle of a Chinese family's dinner. Now, if you understand what I've just said, it's a little difficult to do orally. She was hanging onto a wire that broke, and she swung away from her building into another building, and apparently into the apartment of the Chinese family who lives underneath her. This is a physical impossibility, because the swing had to happen for her to go through that window. So she had to swing away. But the Chinese family lives under her, which means she would have had to somehow swing out from her building, then down, then into the apartment underneath her own apartment. And I'm sorry, this was game-breaking for me. Now you might say, hey, racist guy, maybe it's a different Chinese family, but it's not, because the woman who is banging on the ceiling is sitting at the head of the table who recognizes the woman who lives above her. So it is established early on in the film, the Chinese woman is there, and then it is established that it is the same Chinese woman having dinner. The only way this works is if the Chinese woman who lives under her goes across the street and has dinner with a different Chinese family. Very, very possible. But after they revive her from her crash, she then goes out from the apartment and upstairs back to her own apartment. She does not go downstairs, outside, into her own apartment, and then back up the stairs again. So her swing away from her building somehow broke physics and had her end up in her own building. It doesn't matter how cheap your movie is. It doesn't matter how low budget. I will accept a lot of things. But I cannot accept that someone swung away from a building, smashed through a window, and somehow ended up in their own building. Unless... There is an unspoken rule that this is part of the portal universe. And a portal was put on that window, which led back into the building where she began. And I find that a little difficult to believe. Here is my utter problem with Peter's assessment. And I even discussed it with him prior to this show. He's right. <laughs> The scene is set up exactly as he has stated. The physics of Jill's fall do not make a hell of a lot of sense if you watch it again in the context of looking for how she gets into the department below. Had she swung out and away from the building and then swung back, dropping lower, her entry to the apartment below would have actually been physically possible. But from the angle she is at and how the line is holding, when it breaks, the sheer physics and perspective of how the camera's catching her, she should not end up in the Chinese family's dinner table below, instead she would have just dropped like a rock. Personally, I think it was an editing choice made by a director working with an extremely modest budgeted film who was trying to make the best with the shots that he could. And that's just what he did. Now, there's no doubt about it, the scene is very much flawed, and I get exactly how it can take some folks out of the movie and Peter has it all dead to rights but I gotta say not me doesn't take me out of the movie but I totally understand the argument so either way Peter that was a wonderful job we thank you very much and we encourage you all to go listen to the Velasa podcast
The version of hardware screened here at the LSCE was the 2009 DVD double disc special edition put out by Severin Films. It's a fantastic copy, comes loaded with extras. You got documentaries, interviews with the cast and crew. You have the original Super 8 student film version of hardware that Stanley originally made, plus his thoughts on a sequel, deleted scenes, and audio commentaries. In short, it's pretty bitchin'. This version can still be found on DV and can be yours for the stiff price of about $21.68 by way of Amazon. But it can also be had from some vendors on Blu-ray, averaging about $22. Or if you just want a plain old DVD copy version, I guess you can slum it and just pay the $8.54 it would cost. Again, all to be found on Amazon right this moment. Remember folks, we don't get anything for recommending that you purchase films, we just think it's important that people continue to support physical media so these great companies who hold the rights to such films will continue to release them for our shared consumption and enjoyment. Besides, this is a great flick, and where else can you see all the fun of a robot going nuts throughout an apartment? So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you very much for joining us. I'd like to again extend a special thank you to our sidecar guest, the Velocipeter himself. If you've enjoyed his breakdown, and why wouldn't you? You can find him speaking on this and a host of other topics at the one and only Velosa Podcast, available through iTunes, Spotify, or you can go right to the source at velocipeter.com. If you like us, please follow us on our Facebook page at the Linden Street Cinema Experience and recommend us to friends. We're also on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at LSCEP. Please follow or subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. If you're an Apple podcast user, please, we would greatly appreciate a five star and a review. We are featured on Podchaser.com. That's a podcast database for creators and listeners of podcasts alike. Check us out there. Give us a like there if you like us. And, uh, hey, if you want to throw a review our way, awesome. As always, we are available to receive questions, comments, concerns, or complaints. We are still taking questions for next week's year-end review mail grab bag. So if you'd like to be a part of that, you want to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com, all one word. If you'd like to be even more personal or wish to contribute to a segment in the sidecar, please feel free to send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So until next time, take care out there, everybody, and remember... Life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy.